0: Now it's time for
1: On the Couch with our resident psychologist Jane Enter, exploring life and caring for our mental and
0: spiritual well being on Bay FM
1: 99.9. Welcome to our regular On the Couch segment with resident psychologist Jane Enter, based at First Light Healthcare, Byron Bay. Today, we're talking about something we're all familiar with to a lesser or greater extent. Anxiety. It's part of our body's natural response to stress. A feeling of fear or apprehension about what's to come. The first day of school, perhaps. Going to a job interview or giving a speech in front of an audience. But for a lot of us, these feelings of anxiety can become high And start interfering with our lives. This is when someone like Jane Enter can help. Great to speak with you once again, Jane. Thanks, Fern, and thanks for having me back. Look, just take us through exactly what anxiety is, what role it serves, and when it becomes a problem.
0: Look, you said it beautifully just then. What you were talking about was anticipatory anxiety. So anxiety itself is persistent, intense worry about everyday situations that you can't get out of your head. So you were talking there about the first day of school, that's the anticipation of what could happen. Along with that comes catastrophic thinking. What could happen and then your brain torments you by saying well this could happen and that could happen and it goes to through all the worst case scenarios and so you end up in this worrying state which you can't stop and it has somatic bits to it where you feel you know your heart rate is rapid or you feel sick in your stomach or you just feel a bit quivery inside and why do we have anxiety Originally, it was a protective mechanism to help us survive. So our brains would scan the plains when we were mammoth hunters to look for real and perceived dangers. Of course, those were in the days when, you know, big mammoths were coming over to kill you. So you had to be on guard. And so your brain got wired to help you survive danger. However... Now we have anxiety not about necessarily, but it can be, real threat. It's about perceived real or imagined threat. And most of our anxiety is imagination. But regardless of what your content of your thought is, your brain responds the same way. It drops your amygdala, the alarm system of the brain says, ''Oh, this could happen.'' It goes to your limbic system, your limbic system produces adrenaline, you're on guard, you're ready for action, and you can't turn that off because it's held in your body. So going for a walk and doing certain things help, but it remains in you, keeping you on alert for survival.
1: It's been described as a modern epidemic, but uh, haven't all previous generations experienced Anxiety. Talk a little bit more about how different it is today.
0: I'll talk about both of those. The earliest record of anxiety that we know of came from the 5th century from a Latin-speaking physician called Aurelius who called it panphobia, meaning scared of everything. Then it evolved to something called neurasthenia, which is still used a lot today in Asian countries because it's more comfortable to say I have nerve weakness than my mind is not well. And then Freud, of course, came along with anxiety neurosis and intense anxiety, and it came into our modern thinking uh, in terms of the DSM diagnostic manual around the 60s and 70s.
1: So, the way anxiety manifests hasn't really changed over the centuries, but the things that trigger it certainly have changed. Talk to that.
0: Okay, there was a time when life was a lot simpler, you didn't answer your phone you could turn off your emails, people couldn't contact you 24 hours a day you couldn't see all the bad things happening all over the world on the news channels you didn't have Facebook and social media to compare your tragic life to all those glamorous people that seemed to be living the perfect life, you could turn off your work, you went home on a Friday at five o'clock, no one could contact you via email there was less choice Things were more stable. You got a job and you normally could stay if you wished till the end of your life and get your gold watch. Those things have all changed. It's become more competitive. We've got information overload. We have so many things shown to us that could be frightening that our worry and the amount of things we can worry about has exploded exponentially.
1: Well, let's run through the forms that anxiety can take when it becomes extreme, Jane. Are you, you comfortable with them calling it disorders? I much prefer the old-fashioned high anxiety.
0: Look, I don't even like the word disorder because disorder describes something that's wrong and actually it's a human condition mm-hmm. that we have moods and feelings and things happen to us. So I don't particularly like any form of the word that uses disorder.
1: We'll run through some of the forms that anxiety can take today.
0: Well, the common pervasive one is generalised anxiety disorder, where you just feel anxious about everything and every situation. Then you can have social anxiety when it comes to going out or being in a group or having to have a conversation you feel incredibly stressed and terrified by that and you know you look at the way adolescents and adults have a few drinks before they go out alcohol is like a liquid valium so it calms them down they go out and they can relax and sometimes relax to excess but you know, social anxiety is actually a lot more common than people realise. Mm. And then you have things like a performance anxiety, where you're going to have to give a speech, or you're going to have to play your musical instrument, or you're going on stage, or you're going to have to give a talk, and you feel utterly terrified. And you can often lose your train of thought and freeze. In that classic fight-flight-freeze response, you can suddenly find your mind goes blank and then there are other forms of anxiety like obsessive compulsive disorder which tends to have a genetic component which by the way a lot of anxiety does and a human component because it's wired into human beings brains but obsessive compulsive disorder involves obsessional thinking like um, I've left the door open I've left the door open I must go and check I must go and check and the um, compulsive bit is that you do the behavior to check the thought. So you go and see the doors closed and you close it. And then your mind comes back and says, did you really close that door? You better go and check again. Mm. And that can actually really debilitate people. For example, you're in the shower and you don't think you're clean enough. It can take some people with really severe OCD over an hour to have a shower which means that when they're going out, everything is delayed. It really interferes with their life. And then you have things like separation anxiety, which is not just for children and babies. Adults have it when they fear their partner might leave them. They think they'll die. They get utterly terrified and paralyzed at the thought of not having that person in their life. And they have extreme separation anxiety. And then of course you have um, uh, fear of getting sick, um, where you're scared of getting ill and dying. And that used to be called hypochondria, where you'd go along and check out everything that ever happened in your body and catastrophize and see it as death is coming. And people still have that. Mm-hmm. And of course then uh, there's post-traumatic stress and complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which is from a trauma that has happened to you that makes you feel frightened and scared and unsafe in the world just about all the time.
1: Mm. Jane, I've been very lucky in life. I've had lots of stuff, believe me, but high anxiety hasn't really been a major problem for me. Why are some people more prone to high anxiety becoming a problem?
0: Look, it's multiple reasons. There's a genetic loading. Often you speak to people, and anxiety runs in their families. They can remember, for example, mum worrying that things were going to happen, that they would fall over, that they would, you know, kill themselves. Everything was, you know, this could happen to you. And they could see that mum could never relax, or that dad was constantly worried about certain things. And you look back at family histories, and you can see that anxiety has had a thread through all of the people in the family then there's upbringing like were you securely attached was it a calm household did you grow up in a country that was safe and not at war did you grow up in a place that was safe people who grow up in war zones or violent neighborhoods or places where there's a lot of threat it serves them to be anxious because they need to be on guard and then there's of course accumulative stress even the most calm and centered person who can handle everything you keep adding more and more stress to that person and eventually their central nervous system their coping skills are exceeded by the stress and they become very, very anxious.
1: Mm. You've already just talked a bit to that, but uh, the causes of anxiety, what do we know from actual research?
0: That everyone has a breaking point, basically, that some people have enormous capacity to cope and they can cope with numerous things. They're what we call very resilient But even those people, if you overload them, there is the straw that will break the camel's back. And other people have less capacity to cope, but it doesn't mean, and I really want to stress this, that they're weak or they're not capable. It just means that they haven't been given the skills early on or they haven't had security or things already have started off badly. And so they have a reduced capacity to cope and they're more prone to get anxiety more quickly. And then there are life events like having a baby. Often people get a postnatal depression, which is really an extreme anxiety disorder and then there are people who, you know, go off as a journalist to report on a war zone and they're absolutely fine until something happens and they become highly anxious and scared in the world. So there are a number of triggers and events in life that can take even the calmest person into a state of anxiety Mm. that is pervasive and persistent. I'm really stressing pervasive and persistent because It's normal to have the odd worry. Mm. It's normal to sometimes think, oh, my God, I haven't done that. I need to do it. It's when it's so bad that you can't turn your mind off. You can't sleep at night. You can't be present because in your head you're worrying. So you're in a moment with someone and your head's not with them. It's worrying about what could be happening. So when it's pervasive and persistent, that's when it becomes problematic.
1: Mm. People like the wonderful Gabo Mate believe that anxiety and most mental health conditions in fact originate in childhood experience as a coping mechanism. But before we explore all of that, Jane, are you concerned about the medicalisation of anxiety conditions?
0: I'm concerned about everything being seen as a disorder and a problem. I find that that lacks a kind of commonality and universality of being human. You take anybody who's had a really rough upbringing or a tough life or they've had bad experiences, they're gonna get, you know, worried or sad. These are normal human responses. And of course you want to help them because you don't want people to suffer. But medicalizing everything, Mm. I think, is a way of making it like there's something wrong with you, Mm. not life has happened and it's been too much and welcome, anyone would feel the way you do.
1: Mm. So you take more of a psychosocial approach, because I know there's a lot of scientific research going on to do with the chemicals in the brain that are involved in anxiety.
0: Look... We still don't really know fully how the brain works. We have found certain medications that help with anxiety and depression, some of which we still don't know exactly how they work. But when you think it's just a problem in your brain, well, that is such a limited and reductive view. It's a problem with the world. It's a problem with your social status. It's a problem with whether you've got enough money, food, friends, there are so many things that go into making a community, a world, a country, a human being. To reduce something to, oh, there's something wrong with your brain is such a uh, a, 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 limited
1: view. High anxiety whenever you're near. High anxiety It's you that I fear My heart's afraid to fly It's crashed before But then you take my hand My heart starts to soar Once more My anxiety It's always the same Ooh, anxiety It's you that I blame Well, talk to what you think's really going on here, you and Gabor Mate and the like, at childhood experiences. Tell us a bit more about that.
0: OK. Think of... I'm just going to do a really black and white example. We have, say, Susie. Susie is born into a family with two really happy stable parents. They're absolutely financially okay. They've got a home. They've got financial security. They are absolutely welcoming of this child. They're delighted in the child's existence. They adore her. Susie sees what we call the gleam in the mother's eye and knows, hey, I'm really loved and special. And Susie grows up in a house where there's enough food, there's enough love, there's enough of everything. And she's securely attached and she knows that life gets tough but she's got backup and she's got resources and she feels good in herself and she navigates situations really comfortably even though they might cause her a bit of stress. Then you get say June june is born into a family where she wasn't expected there isn't enough money dad may not be around Mum is depressed after she's born because she's terrified about how she's going to cope she's too busy surviving to see that june is the gleam in her eye and june knows there's not enough not enough anxious about survival little june then internalizes hey there's not enough, the world isn't as safe, I have to really work hard, I may not survive. And that becomes a pervasive experience for her. So when things happen in June's life, she hasn't got that secure bit inside that says, I've got backup, I'm okay. And so her life is going to be very much harder and she's going to have a lot more to deal with than Susie.
1: Mm. Well, Gabor Mate says, anxiety in early childhood is an attachment alarm, a natural coping mechanism to normal fear. It becomes generalised when that need is not met, such as when a parent doesn't come to me when I'm crying. This embeds anxiety.
0: I think that creates an internal experience where you don't feel safe. But there are still people in the world who've had really great lives and they have intense or too many stressful events in a short period of time and they too can go on to develop anxiety. It's not all from childhood. Mm. There really are differentiations that are subtle but need to be made. Mm. And I want to say this. Some people who have really adverse beginnings or who have what a Gabriel Marte is referring to as petite traumas. Those moments when you don't actually feel seen and that your parent isn't reading you right. Those people can still actually be pretty amazingly capable and not have anxiety. It depends on age, resilience, genetics. It's who's in your community. Do you know that even if your parents aren't the best, if you have one really great attachment figure in your life, like a grandmother, that is a protective factor. Mm-hmm. So I think these things are really true, but they're also generalised. And you've got to actually find out individually from each person their history and their life experience to know what it is that is gone into the anxious state that they're in.
1: Tell us about the body and the part that that plays in storing this.
0: Ah, So if you ask people, are you anxious, they might often say to you, no. But their body will tell you something different. And most people feel anxiety first in their body. They notice their heart's beating a bit louder. They notice their breathing. They can't quite breathe enough. They feel their stomach's a bit churny. Often anxiety presents first in the body and the mind says, take note on us. let's keep going. But eventually it catches up and then the mind will also start to you know, experience, I'm worried, I don't feel good, I can't sleep. And that's when the person becomes more aware that they're anxious. The body stores everything. The body does not lie. So the brain can trick you, it can tell you all sorts of things, but your body will remember things and you will often feel things physically long before you notice it mentally.
1: Mm. As I've asked you often, Jane, talk us through how you work through this with a typical client.
0: Look, first of all, I'd like to just give your listeners some resources. There is a wonderful course called Fuck Coping, Start Healing. Beep. By by a guy called Dennis Simsek. And for people who are anxious, it's a 14-week course. And why it's great is you have to practice managing anxiety. And it's a really great thing to do if you um, can't get in to see a therapist or if you really need, which most of us do, to practice managing it exercise is an amazing thing you can start off feeling really anxious and about 20 minutes into a good walk you suddenly notice oh I feel calmer because the very rhythm of walking or swimming or cycling actually pumping that adrenaline through and out of your body has a calming and soothing effect another thing you can do of course if you're calm enough is breathing if you breathe in and notice the breath and you hold your breath generally breathe in for five seconds hold it for five seconds and make the out breath longer over a couple of minutes you'll drop your blood pressure and you will calm down for people who get panic one of the greatest things you can do if you've got access to ice and i'm talking about the kind you freeze and put in the fridge You can put it on your carotid artery, and that immediately calms the body down. Or you can plunge your feet into the coldest, most iciest water, and that will help calm your body down. Or you can literally squeeze your anus, and that, if you squeeze it really tightly for a couple of minutes, will reduce the panic symptoms.
1: I didn't expect that one, Jane. (laughs)
0: Yes, the ass is a very important part of the body.
1: <laughs> Great tool. So high anxiety can be recovered from if you look into the root causes and work through it uh, with someone like yourself. Take us through the therapeutic process of, of that.
0: Okay, so first, for me, I like to know where did the anxiety come from? When did it start? When did you notice it? Because in my view, where it comes from determines the treatment. So if it's early childhood attachment issues, you need to work with the attachment system. If it's from a traumatic event, there are things like EMDR and somatic therapy, which are incredibly useful for working that through in the body and the mind. If it's come from excess stress and too many bad things happening in a short space of time, it's about reducing stress, changing your lifestyle, taking things out that are stressful and adding things in that are calming. If there is a relationship that's causing you extreme anxiety, it's looking at the relationship. So there are different therapeutic approaches depending on the origins of anxiety. But in saying all of that, the effect of anxiety, regardless of where the origin of it is, is in the brain. So working with symptoms to reduce it so that the person is calm enough to do the work is a priority. And those are the things like the MP3, you know, Eliminating Stress CD that I recommended. It's breathing exercises. It's walking. It's it's cognitions like, I think that this bad thing is going to happen and saying, well, is that true? What else could be true? When you are absolutely consumed with worry, it's using a technique called diffusion, where you just step back from it and become the observer rather than the person that's in it. Mm. For example, oh my goodness, I'm gonna get COVID. This is gonna happen to me, I'm gonna die too. Well, we've got a vaccine now. I can see that, you know, we're starting to handle it. I can do these things to keep me safe. There are things one can think and challenge in one's head through things like cognitive behavioural therapy that are a useful tool. They're not the answer, they're a tool. A lot of anxiety has to be managed initially. Mm.
1: There's probably no doubt that the nature of modern living, Jane, and now the stress of this ongoing pandemic is adding to anxiety levels for everyone. Have you really noticed this?
0: 100%. I've never been busier. Every therapist, counsellor I know is in the same position.
1: And anxiety is part of that?
0: Oh, it's the main thing that brings people to therapy you know anxiety is one of the biggest things that get people coming through the door because it's so bloody unpleasant Mm. to be in a state of worry and fear and not be able to turn your mind off and to feel concerned about everything in your life and never be able to find peace and relaxation it's horrendous Mm. so people really don't want to be in that state and this pandemic, and note the beginning of anxiety, panphobia in the fifth century, pandemic, they go together really well. Mm-hmm. It's threatening our survival. And survival was why we had anxiety widened to us in the beginning. So you have a huge threat, like a pandemic or a war or nuclear issues, people start to feel this. I don't know if the world's so safe and it's a little bit uncertain and it can build and generate extreme distress Mm.
1: so it's triggering all of us in different ways and the way it manifests in so many people you're saying is through high anxiety
0: yes it is because people are worried deep down about their survival The origins of anxiety was a protective mechanism to help us human beings survive. That's why our brains have that amygdala alarm system, that hippocampus that makes meaning out of what's going on and that limbic system that gets us ready to fight, flight or freeze. That is our genetic heritage. So when you have a threatening event, that thing turns on and you get anxious.
1: So it's triggering all of our stuff. We will devote a whole episode to this. (laughs) The opportunities that this actually presents because it's bringing our stuff to the surface. Absolutely. Therefore, you can actually, for the first time for many people in your life, actually confront it.
0: Yes, and I think there's something really beautiful about being able to be vulnerable and to say, actually, I'm a bit scared and I don't think I'm coping that well and I am worried about the world. In my observation, when people have those kind of conversations with each other, they get much closer and their relationship develops. When we're all tough and coping, we don't have that depth of connection. It's a wonderful opportunity to deepen our connections to each other.
1: And I've actually noticed that with some friends. And one friend actually, for the first time ever, posted His vulnerability online about how he's deeply worried about everything that's going on and the stuff that's been going on within him, it was so open and honest and personal and he got an overwhelming reaction from everyone.
0: It's beautiful because that's the universality of human experience and knowing that we're all in this together and that we all have these similar thoughts and feelings and that it's okay to be vulnerable and to say, I'm a bit scared and I don't know quite what to do.
1: Mm. How often, Jane, would you need to combine (laughs) therapy with pharmaceutical interventions?
0: As you know, psychologists can't prescribe, but... When someone is so anxious that they can't utilize any of the things that are suggested and they're in such distress, that's when a pharmaceutical can help. But that for me might be one in ten people. It's not that often. And pharmaceuticals for that one in ten person has incredible benefits because it calms their mind down enough to actually then utilise the strategies and help build up their coping skills in order to be less anxious.
1: So let's just go out then with the things that people can, the simple things that people can do for themselves at home, the lifestyle changes and natural remedies that might be able to help them, the simple things they can do and take
0: exercise every day if you can for an hour two have a getting up time and a going to bed time have a routine three try and do things slowly and mindfully at different periods in the day and tune into your body and say actually how am i and take about two minutes just to do some breathing and calm yourself down if you can sit quietly for 20 minutes a day and just go inwards because going inwards and noticing yourself and learning how to talk to yourself is really helpful. Talk to a friend, say, hey, I'm struggling and you will probably feel immediately reassured because they'll say me too and you can have a conversation. Turn your iPad, internet, social media off about 6 o'clock at night and truly be quieter and stiller. Don't respond to emails. Have cut-off points. Put in a routine. I don't answer my phone before 8.30. I don't answer my phone after 6.30. Create spaces in the day and in your life where you are uncontactable or where you are just with your family and the outside world is not getting in. Get a dog. (laughs) (laughs) Walking with the dog, all animals really, Mm. um, for people generally lower blood pressure with padding, stroking. Having a companion. Doing things like not drinking caffeine after midday. Having things like chamomile teas and things that are generally nerve calmers rather than nerve agitators. Having a good diet. Those are just simple, practical things you can do.
1: A wealth of knowledge and information as always, even with a lot of noise in the background. Great to speak to you once again, Jane.
0: Ah, Thanks for having me back, Fern.
1: On our next On the Couch episode, we'll discuss another epidemic of our times, depression. Hope you can join us then. High anxiety, you win. It's very clear to me, I've got to give in. High anxiety, you win.